we get to an historic study tonight as we approach the uh, last book of the Old Testament. So let's dive straight in. It is, of course, Malachi. And um, let's just uh, get ourselves sorted out with the old background to it. Uh, you remember last time we did um, Haggai and Zechariah, and um, this is kind of like in the same kind of time frame, but as you're going to see 100 years or so later. So let's, let's, let's just remind ourselves, um, in uh, Haggai and Zechariah, we, we, we saw the history covered by the historical books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and, and we're dealing with the period of Israel's history when they return from the Babylonian captivity. And uh, you'll remember that the Babylonian Empire has been taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, then the 70 years of the captivity comes to an end. And um, under King Cyrus of the Persian Empire, uh, the Jews are sent back into the land to re-establish it, to rebuild um, Jerusalem and uh, to get going again as a nation. And uh, you'll remember we saw that um, this was done under the governorship of a bloke called Zerubbabel, who was actually in the line of King David, so uh, to all intents and purposes a messianic figure, and uh, Joshua, the, the high priest. And uh, we saw that they were aided by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And, uh, and th these guys, they went back into the land and uh, they, they rebuilt the temple. So the, the general building of Jerusalem is well underway and the temple was completed um, during the, the governorship of Zerubbabel and the high priestship of Joshua and uh, urged on by the prophesying in particular of Haggai, the temple was completed uh, in 516 BC. Now, 60 years or so later, Ezra, the priest, returned to the land. He, he was sort of like in, um, still in the captivity, still in uh, Persia, and he, he came to the land 60 years later. And he, he built further on the work that Zerubbabel and Joshua had done, and he, he got the, the whole priestly systems going, the sacrificial systems going, he, he got it all up and running. So now not only is the temple built, but the whole kind of, the religious life of Israel is very much returning to, um, to uh, as it was, and, and, and Ezra strengthens the, um, you know, the religious life of the nation. And then 13 years afterwards, Nehemiah, joins Ezra and he supervises the building of the walls um, of Jericho and uh, you'll remember that along um, you know in partnership with Ezra they they spearheaded reforms to help the poor so they got kind of like the uh, social security system going again um, they put a stop to the mixed marriages that were happening the Jews were marrying um, Gentiles who hadn't, you know, sort of like become proselytes. So they were marrying Gentiles who, who didn't have faith in the Lord. And so they put a stop to that. Sabbath keeping was restored. Um, and, you know, they, they, they got people to be faithful in regards to tithes and offerings. So generally, the life of Israel as God's people over this period of time um, was being, um, you know, sort of like restored to much how it used to be. And, um, and, and 12 years after, ne after Nehemiah, you know, sort of started, well, finished the, the work on the walls, um, he, he returned back to Persia 
uh, which was kind of where he was based. He was a, a servant to the king. And uh, he returned to Persia. And you remember we saw that once he did that, I mean, he was gone for a while, and that once he did that, Israel kind of lapsed back and uh, kind of fell away and got back into all the sins that Nehemiah had helped to, you know, to get them to repent of. And so after a while, he comes back again and he puts all those things to rights. Now, Malachi comes onto the scene in Israel during the period of time when Nehemiah has gone back to Persia. So Nehemiah goes back to Persia, then Malachi comes on the scene, and then after Malachi, Nehemiah comes back and finishes the work. So, um, you know, sort of like around 433 BC, that's, that's when Malachi comes on the scene. So Malachi is 90 to 100 years after Haggai and Zechariah, and of course they were the books that we did last time. So Israel has come back from the captivity, and uh, you've got Haggai and Zechariah, and then there's a gap of 60 years, and Nehemiah and Ezra come on the scene, and, uh, and, and it's at that time that Malachi is raised up as well. So Malachi is uh, chronologically the last prophet in Israel's history before the New Testament, and in actual fact before the coming of John the Baptist. So this is right at the end of Old Testament history. So Malachi is actually the, the last of the prophets to appear. Now, we'll dive into chapter 1. And of course the point is that much of what we're going to be doing here will ring bells, because basically he's putting right the things that Nehemiah had got going with Ezra, and yet which had lapsed when Nehemiah went back to Persia for a while. So, a lot of it will be covering ground we've seen before, nothing, nothing new under the sun. Um, but what I want to do is to just read you a few verses, just to show there's a particular literary style that Malachi uses um, in order to present his book. It's kind of a, a question and answer thing. And uh, let, let's just is establish the literary technique that he employs before we go into the um, into the actual content of it, because unless you're aware of the technique he uses, it might confuse you in your reading of it. Um, give you an example. I mean, first of all, verse two: "I have loved you," says the Lord, but you ask, "How have you loved us?" Now, that's the technique that Malachi employs. What he does is he sets up a question and answer kind of thing between himself and the people. So that what he does is he uses the format, each point, or most of the points that, you know, he deals with. He, he does it with a question and answer thing. And he does a little question and answer, and then he dives into the content. Uh, I mean, if you go down into verse 6. Um, a son honours his father, a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty. So there's the Lord asking them a question. Um, and uh, verse 7, You place defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? You see, th this is the technique. If you go to chapter 2, verse 17, just the last example of it, and... Um, and uh, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? You see, so, so just, just be aware, like in your reading through it, that that's the little technique that he uses. He, he kind of puts these questions and answers 
He asks the question, Israel answers, then God asks a question, then Israel answers. He does it like that, okay. So that's the technique, all right? That's the literary device he uses. But, um, you know, obviously now we can actually um, uh, dive into the, the content. And, uh, and in chapter one, what it starts off with is that the, the people in general are questioning whether or not the Lord actually loves them. So the issue that he's dealing with here is that he's got the people, you know, does God love us or not? All right. And the answer that Israel receives through Malachi um, is that, that Jacob was chosen over his brother Esau. Now, remember, Jacob and Esau were brothers, okay, but Israel came from the line of Jacob, whereas Esau gave birth to the nation of Edom. And so, what the Lord is saying here, their questioning is, does the Lord love us or not? All right, we, we are doubting God's love for us as a nation. And the answer they get is that Jacob was chosen over his brother Esau, or Israel was chosen over the nation of Edom. And of course, the point that you've got here is that in the Babylonian captivity, Israel was destroyed, it was carted off into captivity, but so was Edom. And in fact, we saw that the prophet Obadiah, his prophecy was that Edom was going to be destroyed in the Babylonian captivity. But the point is, although Israel and Edom were destroyed in the Babylonian captivity, it is Israel and not Edom who have been restored as a nation. Edom virtually vanished forever. Edom as a nation was never restored. I mean, Edomites continued. Uh, in the Greek, they're called Idumeans. You know, that's why when we get to the New Testament, we'll see that Herod is an Idumean. That means uh, Edomite. But the point is, as, as a nation, they never, ever really re-established themselves. And so, the answer to this question is, they're saying, they're questioning in their hearts, does the Lord love us? And the answer to the question is, well, you know, you work it out for yourselves. Edom? Where's Edom? They were taken into Babylonian captivity. Where are they now? Gone. But you have been restored to the land. So I ask you, who does the Lord love? You or Edom? You or someone else? And of course it was them as a nation. And so the Lord, through, um, through him, is saying, look, I do love you, and the, the proof of it is simply, you're restored. I've brought you back from the captivity. So that's the answer to your question. Edom, those other nations, they're gone. But you are still there. That's the proof of my love. And of course, in, in Romans, Paul uses these very verses um, to demonstrate God's absolute sovereign choice in regards to nations and individuals as well. And of course the point is that everything, it's, it's, it's never to do with, with worthiness or unworthiness. Israel didn't survive because they were worthy. They survived because God chose them. And if someone is blessed, they're not blessed because they're worthy. Quite the contrary, no one is worthy. They're blessed because of God's choice. And, 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 and in Romans, Paul takes this actual thing 
and, and and he says look you know this is god's sovereign choice it's got nothing to do at all with um you know with whether or not you're worthy but it's simply god's choice and of course the thing was that as god said that that jacob he loved and esau he hated i jacob was the chosen one and not esau and so the lord answers that question you're doubting my love you're doubting whether you are my people well look, obviously you are the chosen ones i've restored you into the land so that's the first point the lord reassuring them that he does love them then malachi moves on and uh, he, he he brings um quite a stern rebuke now and he he accuses them of having contempt for the lord and his table now the idea of table here being the altar all right the altar here is called the table and the way that they're showing contempt for the lord is that they're they're bringing him animals that are blemished now under the law an animal to be brought to the temple to be sacrificed had to be without blemish obviously a picture of jesus jesus was perfect without blemish now what they're doing is they're picking out the worst animals from their flocks the ones that they probably couldn't sell anyway you know the ones with three legs you know or sort of two heads or you know something like that and 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 they're taking out the ones that are otherwise no good to them and they're sacrificing them to the lord and so what they're doing is they're making sacrifices that don't cost them anything at all and if you think about it it's the ultimate hypocrisy isn't it to go through the motions of sacrificing to the lord when what you're sacrificing is something you don't want anyway you know it's a bit like you know sort of like you know sort of like you've long since given up smoking and then you give a packet of cigarettes to the lord i mean it's you know it's it's just that kind of thing and malachi says that look you are showing contempt for the lord in doing that and um and he then goes on to say look you wouldn't insult each other like this um he says look a son wouldn't insult his father was he you know he'd probably get hiding um a slave wouldn't insult his master like that and the people certainly wouldn't try it on with the governor i mean can you imagine for instance paying your taxes in forged money which would be the equivalent well the governor would have soon had you wouldn't he and yet madakai is saying but you're happy to do it to the lord aren't you you wouldn't do it to each other because you'd be frightened you wouldn't get away with it but you'll do it to the Lord quite happily. And here they are bringing all, you know, like they're pigeons that have only got one wing and, you know, sort of things like that. Blemished animals offering to them to the Lord in sacrifice. And, uh, you know, perhaps wives once they got over 40, I don't know. And, um, you know, they're, they're bringing everything that they don't need and offering it as sacrifices. And of course, Malachi goes on to demonstrate that this utterly, this is the exact opposite of acknowledging him as the sovereign lord and the king over all the nations again back to this thing israel are his chosen people they've survived edom hasn't that very fact presents god as sovereign over all the earth god decides the fate of every nation and yet here they are bringing this sovereign lord blemished sacrifices so they're showing contempt for the god whom they ought to be bowing down in humble adoration to instead and uh you know so 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 malachi is saying look stop showing contempt for the lord in chapter two he moves on to the priests and he moves on to the priests because he tells them that they're the worst culprits 
in regards to, I mean, the things in the prophecy that he's dealing with, that he's going to correct them for, in chapter 2 he's here saying, and you priests are the worst of the lot. You are more guilty than the people. And the priests, who were the religious leaders, they should have stood more than anyone else for righteousness. And yet, rather than standing for righteousness, I mean, okay, let's say that the people are in all these sins. Well, the priests would, of course, should be maintaining righteousness. Be saying, far from it, you priests are worse than the people, and rather than giving them an example of righteousness to follow, you have merely become a stumbling block to them. And the Lord actually threatens them with a curse if they don't repent. And the Lord tells these priests, you know, really does, look, stop or there really is going to be trouble. And, you know, the Lord, you know, says that, 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 that a curse will come upon them um, if they don't um, get themselves right. And uh, then he, he moves on and uh, rebukes the people in general again. He moves back to everyone en masse now. And the point that he makes is that all these things that they're doing, their general out-of-fellowship condition is, is, is all in the light of the fact that they were the covenant nation of God, that they were God's chosen people. Above all other nations, they had a relationship with God that no one else had. He was their father, he was the father of their nation, he wasn't of any other, and he was the creator of their nation in a very specific way. And, and yet all this this these things that they're carrying on, all this is in the light of the fact that they are God's, you know, special people, and yet they're behaving like this. And it then comes to light, and Malachi deals with this now, that the, that the people were getting upset and they were complaining that God wasn't speaking to them. So, I mean, their general experience was that they were praying, but God wasn't speaking to anyone. And there was a bit of a, you know, God's not speaking to us going on, and, you know, I can't hear the Lord's voice, blah, blah, blah. And so Malachi tells them, look, there's a reason that you're not hearing God's voice at the moment. And the reason is because, look, you're intermarrying, and you've been forbidden not to, you know, you've been told not to. Um, at, at this particular time, divorce was, was becoming at the drop of a hat, and marriage wasn't being honoured. Um, there was a lot of violence in the land. And Malachi is saying, look, all, all these things, that's why you're not hearing God's voice. And, um, and he says, look, it shouldn't surprise you that you're not hearing the Lord's voice, for heaven's sake. You know, I, I mean, if, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So on top of everything else, all these sins that they're into, and, and this despising the Lord in, in general, nevertheless, they're, they're, they're moaning and, and, and grumbling that God isn't speaking to them. And now Malachi is coming on the scene saying, well, this is, I'm telling you why he's not speaking to you, because you're not right with him. Repent, then you'll hear his voice. And in actual fact, Malachi was God's voice to them. Because obviously, I mean, if, there, if there's known sin that we're turning a blind eye to, well then obviously conviction of sin is God's voice to us at that particular time. And he, he tells them that, that, that they were wearying the Lord with, with their words. Because obviously, I mean, they're, they're, they're praying away, oh, Lord speak, Lord, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and Malachi says, no, actually, you're wearying the Lord with all your words. 
and uh, he, he tells them that, that they turned right and wrong on their heads. That, they, that they'd reverse everything. I mean, the innocent they considered to be guilty, the guilty they considered not to be, and, you know, and, I mean, they'd reversed everything. They were living almost the exact opposite of the life you would leave, lead if you were really following the Lord. And, uh, you know, the Lord says, no, look, you're, you're wearying me with your words. And, uh, and then the people go on and they question the Lord's justice. And I think probably what they're saying is, well, in the light of that then, why hasn't the Lord judged us? And they start moaning about that. And, and, and so then they're unhappy that if, if, if what Malachi is saying is true, if they're that out of fellowship, well, then why isn't the Lord judging us? Well, of course, the Lord was having mercy on them. So even when the Lord's having mercy on them, it doesn't suit them. They're moaning about it. And, and you see just this appalling condition when the Lord literally can't do a thing right. It doesn't matter what he does. If he tells them off it's wrong, if he has mercy on them, they'll moan at him for that. And, and, and you've just got this, this dreadful state going on. And so the Lord says, look, you have wearied me with your words. And I think, you know, probably if we paraphrase that, I think, you know, the, what the Lord is saying to them, look, what you are is shouting so loudly that I can't hear what you say. And, 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 and I mean, sometimes that can be true of us in prayer, can't it? You know, the, the, you know, that sort of what we are is actually denying what we're saying. We've got to make sure this isn't true, you know, true of us in regards to sort of like telling people about the Lord. Because sometimes what we are can speak so loudly that people aren't going to hear what we say. And, you know, and, and I think probably Robert Lee, he'd have, you know, if he was doing a study on this passage, he'd have said, well, words, 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 you know, that's what Robert would have said. These people, words, 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 all right, where's the fruit, where's the life? And, of course, that's the point. And Malachi is saying to them, look, get your life, all right, back online as it should be. Then you'll hear the Lord's voice then he'll speak to you, then he won't be wearied anymore by your words. And, uh, you know, so there he, he really is saying to the people, look, get right with God, you know, repent, come back to where you should be. Right, and then um, in, in chapter 3, I'll actually read verse 1, just because it's such a, an important verse. And um, God speaking to them, see... I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now when did the Lord come to his temple? Well, you know, when Jesus went into Jerusalem, he went to the temple, didn't he? And who was the messenger who prepared the way before the Lord? John the Baptist. So here you've got clear prophecy of John the Baptist and um, and Jesus, and um, and Malachi go, goes on to tell them that uh, that when when the Lord does come to His temple, that that, that it will be to to refine them. Um, remember when Jesus actually did come, the Jews were wanting a political saviour who was going to save them from Rome. Whereas here, it's quite clearly shown that Messiah was going to come to refine them. Not to save them from some political bondage, but to save them from their sin, as Jesus kept emphasising to them. And, um, and he says that, that when eventually that happens, 
and when Messiah has purged them as a nation, then their offerings will eventually become righteous. And of course, whereas at the moment Jesus came and Israel rejected him, so Israel has itself been rejected by God, nevertheless, in the future, Israel will be grafted back in and they will indeed receive Jesus. And then in that glorious future that Israel faces, all their offerings will then indeed be righteous because they will then have been thoroughly refined by Messiah. And uh, just just read verse five, and, and and this gives a you know sort of like a list of the, the sins that you know that God wanted them as a nation um, to be purged of. And he says, "I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers." against those who defraud labourers of their wages. See, the old social justice is always in there. Who oppress the widows and the fatherless and, and deprive aliens of justice. This, this is where Star Trek is so important because to, to seek out strange new life and strange civilizations, to boldly go, of course, where no man has gone before because we must make sure that aliens get justice. <laughs> But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. And, uh, you know, so, so there you've, you know, you've got the old social justice thing. And, and of course, God, God hates that. And he wanted Israel to be a nation that really did show forth social justice to the world. And um, then uh, Malachi changes subject a bit. And um, he then tells them that as a nation that they're robbing God. Um, and that they're robbing God in withholding their tithes and offerings. Now, we've done this before, um, particularly in the tapes um, on giving. Now, tithes in the Old Testament were Israel's tax system, and they were mandatory. Offerings was what you would call their giving, and that was free will. And here, they're told that they're robbing God because they're not giving. In fact, not only are they not giving, they're not even paying their taxes. I mean, so they're tax dodging, okay. Um, and the, what the Lord says is that there was such blessing just waiting for them if they were prepared to put these things right. Let's actually um, read that bit, because they're, they're, they're good verses to know. Um, we'll read from, from, from verse 10. And God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Remember, a lot of the tithing, the tax system, was to pay the Levites, who were full-time workers, all right? Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines of your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord God Almighty. And, and, and so there's the, you know, there's that blessing, you know, that God says, look, if, if you give to me, you're not going to be the loser of it, you know, at all. You can't outgive God. And, uh, you know, sort of what we give to God, he will bless and return a hundredfold. And he says that they were missing out on so much blessing for being tight. And it's quite interesting, actually, because, um, again, obviously, tithing was mandatory because that was their taxes. But free will 
was giving and it was free will. Now, as soon as you command people to give, it's no longer free will. All right. Now, just notice that although in verse um, ten, uh, sorry, although um, in the previous verses, in verse uh, eight, God has said that you're that they're robbing him in tithes and offerings as well. Okay. In verse ten, when he gives them a commandment. It doesn't say, bring the whole tithe and offering into my storehouse. It's just bring the tithing. You see that? Because God can't command you to give. Not free will offering. Because if you're commanded to, it's not free will anymore. But God could and did command them to give tithing because that was obviously their tax system and that was mandatory. And, um, you know, so, so, so therefore the Lord is, you know, really he's dealing with that tax dodging honest dealing and being generous as well and, and, and obviously there's, there's great blessing in that. And, uh, and then I I immediately afterwards in, in verses 13 to 15 we'll, we'll actually read them. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You see there's the question answer technique. You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Now, what the people are saying here is that they conclude that in actual fact serving the Lord wasn't worth it that there wasn't actually anything in it for them. I mean, you know, they, they talk about going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty. So they got in their heads, oh, following the Lord, what a drag, you see. They got that in their heads. And, um, and that what they say, it's not worth it. And they say, we could actually do better without him. Uh, and, and they say, look, the arrogant get blessed, the evildoers prosper, those who challenge God escape. So they're thinking, wow. What's the point of following the Lord? You know, we'll 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 stop following the Lord because that's going to be better for us. And and and, and again, it's just an insight of where these people were. So God has said, look, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, and oh, I'm going to pour you out blessing that you wouldn't you wouldn't believe. They're saying, yeah, not worth it, Lord. Oh no, it's sort of walk around like more. It was really boring and horrible following you and. Anyway, the evildoers get away with it. It's probably better if we don't. And, and this, this just gives you the mentality of the people at this point. It's absolutely amazing. And, and, and then chapter 3 ends, um, in actual fact, with, with some response. And a faithful remnant, a few of the people, not all of the people, but a few of the people, what they do, they hear what Malachi says and they repent. All right? They receive God's word and they repent. And what they do is they draw up a scroll of remembrance, all right? They, they, they write out a declaration, all right, of intent, and, uh, you know, that they're going to honour the Lord by their obedience and commitment. So what they do, they repent, and they kind of write it down. They make it official. They kind of write out an official document and commit themselves to, to, to stay right with the Lord and to follow him. And then chapter 4 the last chapter in the Old Testament. We'll actually read, read, read through some of these verses. Let's read verse 1. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble 
and that that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. Now there you have the days coming, the final judgment. So there you've got, obviously within the context of the last days, the second coming, you've got eventually, um, you know, when all unbelievers who are in Hades when they die, then end up in the lake of fire. So, so that verse there talking about the future eternal judgment for unbelievers. Then we'll read verse 2 and 3. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healings, healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. And of course Israel as a nation faces a restored future as a result of Messiah coming to them. And of course here the imagery, Messiah, is referred to as as the sun of righteousness that rises, like dawn comes, rises with healing in its wings. And, And of course the imagery is the sun is a great light, and of course Jesus is the light of the world. It's, it's the picture of Jesus shining upon us, but here particularly shining upon Israel as his nation. And so there you have, in contrast to the eternal judgment that unbelievers are going to face, in contrast, Israel as a nation, not necessarily individuals in it, because individual Jews are saved or not saved according to whether they believe in Jesus, but Israel as God's chosen people as a nation uh, faces that assured future, you know, with the sun of righteousness arising on them with healing in its wings. Jesus, the light of the world, watching over them. And of course, eventually, Jesus will rule the world from Jerusalem itself. Then in verse 4, he says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. Now, Moses, Moses gets mentioned there, and uh, we'll be back to that in one moment. And... Um, but we'll just go on to read verse 5, the, you know, the last verse, and, and then it might make sense. He says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now, there endeth the Old Testament. And there you've got this prophecy that Elijah was to come. And of course, to this day, the Jews, they light two candles, don't they? There's, there's, there's one for, no, they, they have two seats, uh, two, two dinner settings, don't they? One is for Elijah and one is for Messiah. And uh, so here's the prophecy that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah will come. And that's why the Jews at the time of Jesus were expecting Elijah. Now, you'll remember that Jesus, and we've already seen in chapter 3 the prophecy that was eventually fulfilled in John the Baptist appearing, and you'll remember that Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah. Not literally, but the teaching that Jesus gives about Elijah boils, boils down basically to this, that the idea was that when Messiah came, Israel would receive him and the kingdom of God would be established on the earth. Now, when Jesus came, had Israel received him, then the kingdom of God would have been established 2,000 years ago and there wouldn't have been a church age, it wouldn't have happened. But because Israel rejected him, therefore the kingdom of God on earth 
the kingdom of Israel, all right, the kingdom of, of heaven on earth, has been postponed and we now have instead the church age. Therefore, because the church has replaced Israel, we get a second aspect of the kingdom. A literal physical kingdom is one day going to come, all right? And that's why Jesus said that that kingdom comes with signs that can be observed. But on another occasion, Jesus said the kingdom will come with signs that can't be observed. The kingdom of God is within you. And the point is that because Israel rejected him, the kingdom of God on earth was postponed. That will come later. However, anyone who received him as their saviour would receive his rule and his authority in their hearts. So to that extent, they would have the kingdom of God inside them. And the point was that John the Baptist would be, as it were, the Elijah of the coming of the kingdom of God in their own hearts. So John the Baptist was the Elijah for anyone individually who received the kingdom of God in their hearts. Now, of course, the point is that the coming of this kingdom is now going to be at the second coming. But prior to the second coming, we have Elijah appearing in Jerusalem with Moses as well, and although they're not named, um, it's it's clear that it is them in Revelation. Um, you know, sort of Elijah and Moses, the law and the prophets. Elijah does indeed come and preaching in Jerusalem up to the coming of Jesus on earth. And yet, obviously, in another sense, Elijah did come during the time of Jesus, because when Jesus was transfigured, there was Elijah with Moses, the law and the prophets. And so the point is, Elijah is going to come before the kingdom is established, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, all right? Israel rejected Jesus, so the kingdom was postponed. Elijah did come, but he only appeared to Jesus and uh, Peter, James and John uh, when Jesus was transfigured. So Elijah's coming has been temporarily postponed, and so he's going to come at the end of the great tribulation, just prior to the second coming. Um, however, for any individual who receives Jesus as their saviour, the kingdom of God is established in their hearts during the church age. We as the church are the kingdom of God, and therefore Elijah, uh, sorry, John the Baptist would have acted as their Elijah during that time. And that is why Jesus said that John is Elijah. All right, you know, so if you receive me, if you believe on me, then, then John is the Elijah who's preaching in the lead up to me coming, as it were. So that is why, you know, sort of Jesus called um, John Elijah. And uh, why, why this la last verse of the Bible, of the Old Testament, talks about Elijah coming. And, and see, it says, look, he, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, blah, 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 or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now there endeth the Old Testament, the Lord's saying, if you don't receive what I'm about to do, I will strike the land with a curse. Rather than getting a blessing, you'll get a cursing. Now what happened to Israel as a result of rejecting Jesus? Roman occupation completely destroyed. You see, they got the cursing because they rejected Jesus. However, as a result of the Great Tribulation, Israel will believe on Jesus, pray, he will return, Elijah will have come to them with Moses as well, and then at the second coming, the kingdom will be established, and all the promises uh, unfulfilled as yet to Israel in the Old Testament will be fulfilled.
Now don't put the kettle on yet. <laughs> because we may now have finished the Old Testament, but we haven't finished tonight yet. That's right, be, because there's 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 a bit more we've got to do. In fact, there are there are two more things we've got to do. Um, and the first one is this. You'll remember after we did Chronicles and Kings and Samuel and that, you'll remember that with all those kings and the two different kingdoms, that we, we gave time and I chronologically just listed every king for you, reminding you very, very quickly of the history in which they did it. All right. You know, the history in which they lived. Now, it is very much easier to do it with the prophets because there's not so many of them. But nevertheless, having now, you know, sort of like completed the, the, the last bit of the old, you know, like the prophets, we're now in a position to just really quickly go through them and just remind ourselves who each prophet was, where they came in and blah, 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 what their message was about. It's very, very simple. It's not as complicated as you think. So a, a quick, quick run through now the prophets of, of Israel and Judah. Um, or, you know, sort of I, those that at least have books in the Old Testament. They're the ones we're concerned with. Not all the prophets, but the ones that have uh, books in, in their names. Now, let's remind ourselves that we've got to deal with four separate time periods. The first one is the lead-up to the Assyrian captivity of Israel, the northern kingdom. That's time period one. Then you get the lead-up to the Babylonian captivity of Judah in the south. That's time period two. Then you get the actual Babylonian captivity itself. And then after that, you get the restoration of Israel back in the land. All right. So let's, let, let's do the first one. And it's in the lead-up to the Assyrian captivity of Israel. You'll remember some hundred... Uh, you know, a few hundred years after Israel got into the land, there was the split, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And eventually, all right, the northern kingdom ended up going into Assyrian captivity. And, and so that's the, the, the first time period we, we cover. Now then, we start obviously with Elijah and Elisha. Um, they didn't have books in their names, but obviously they're still major you know, sort of like prophets, and of course they were prophets of Israel. They were from the northern kingdom itself, and their message and ministry was to the northern kingdom. Um, Elisha succeeding Elijah, and uh, he, he died around 797 BC. Um, at, at that time, both Israel and Judah were at the peak of their political and economic powers. So, so, so they were, you know, everything was, was going well as far as national life economically and politically was concerned. And, uh, but, but the first of the prophets in the north that we're interested appeared 20 years or so after Elisha's death, and it was Jonah. And Jonah came first, 780 to 750. These all overlap one way or the other. And uh, you'll remember that he was a prophet of Israel to Israel. So he was from the northern kingdom. And that also, uh, although he appears in Kings, his actual book concerns the fact that he was sent to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, to be an evangelist to them. Next comes the prophet Hosea. And again, he was from Israel itself. So he was a prophet of Israel with a message to Israel. And again, 
very simple, his message warning them that if they didn't get right with God, there'd be a captivity. Next, and all these overlap, Amos, same thing, he, 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 was, um, he was from the south though, he was from Judah, the southern kingdom, but his ministry was to the northern kingdom. So Amos came up from Judah, up to the north, to Israel, and he prophesied to them again, get right or there's going to be a captivity. Then comes Isaiah. Um, now Isaiah was down in the south, he was a prophet of Judah and his message was to Judah. And you'll remember that when the Assyrians carted the northern kingdom off into captivity, the Assyrians actually marched south and laid siege to Jerusalem. So the southern kingdom was about to fall as well, but through the ministry of Isaiah, the southern kingdom was saved. So only the northern kingdom ended up going into the Assyrian captivity. And then lastly, you've got Micah. Again, he was from the south, from Judah, but his ministry was largely to Israel, again warning them of impending judgment and captivity if they didn't get right with God. And, uh, and eventually, the northern kingdom, Israel, fell to Assyria in 721 BC. And Hosea, Isaiah, and Micah were all living at the time. So it's the first time period, all right, Jonah, Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, and Micah, all in that time period, all right, largely a ministry to the northern kingdom. If you don't repent, you're going to go into captivity through the Assyrians. Israel didn't repent, off they went. The one exception, Isaiah, his preaching in Jerusalem saved the south from Assyrian captivity, so eventually only Israel went off into captivity. Right, then we get the next time period, and um, because a hundred years or so later, the southern kingdom went off into captivity and uh, this time at the hand of the Babylonians. The northern kingdom never heard of again, the ten lost, lost tribes, never restored again. Right, so the south is facing, eventually, going into captivity itself. And the, the first prophet to appear in this time frame was Zephaniah, and um, he, he worked with King Josiah, who was a good king, and they had a real revival. They worked together and there was a real reformation in Israel, a real national returning of the Lord, uh, to the Lord. But Zephaniah did predict that nevertheless eventually uh, there would be a Babylonian captivity. Next come, comes Nahum, and uh, Nahum, you remember that his ministry was to prophesy that Assyria was going to be destroyed for having taken the northern kingdom off into captivity. Next comes Jeremiah, and Jeremiah told the people, look, you've gone too far, you haven't repented, the Babylonian captivity is going to happen, accept it. Roll with the punches, go with the flow, it's God's will. Don't fight it, accept it. So that was the ministry of Jeremiah, as it were, preparing the people for the coming um, captivity. Uh, then Habakkuk, and you'll remember we saw his problem, um, you know, sort of crying out to the Lord, you know, Lord, we're so sinful, why aren't you judging us? And the Lord says, I'm going to through the Babylonians. And he says, Lord, how can you do that? They're worse than we are. And so that was kind of, you know, he, he struggled with the justice of Babylon being the means of judgment on the south. 
and, um, and then eventually Judah fell to the Babylonian captivity in 606. Jeremiah and Habakkuk definitely both still alive at the time. Now, there are two other prophets that I'll mention now because we can't fit them into a time frame because we don't, you know, we, we have no way of knowing what dates they were. The first one was Joel. Do you remember the swarm of locusts and using that as a picture of, you know, the, you know, the Lord's judgment and that eventually you get the valley of Jehoshaphat or the valley of decision when God enters into judgment with all the nations of the world, all right? Um, now, we, 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 we know nothing about Joel. We don't know when he was. Um, he, you know, so, so we, we don't know whether he was from the north or the south, but we just can't date him and we can't place him. All we've got is the prophecy. And then secondly, uh, we can't fit Obadiah inaccurately, again, because we've got no um, dates. But the one thing that we can do is that given that Obadiah prophesied that Edom, uh, Esau's, you know, Jacob's brother Esau, Edom, he prophesied that Edom was going to be destroyed. All right, and we know that Edom was destroyed around 600 BC by the Babylonians. After the Babylonians took Judah into captivity, they popped over to Edom and completely destroyed it. So with Obadiah, all we know is that he wrote that before the Babylonian captivity, but we don't know when. Might have been 300 years before, might have been 50 years before. Again, we can't date him because we've got no way of doing that. So there's Joel and Obadiah, because just because they don't fit in anywhere else. Uh, third time period, now we've got actually in Babylon in the captivity, and you have Daniel and Ezekiel. They were both in the Babylonian captivity itself. And then fourthly, back in the land, you get Haggai and Zechariah, they worked together, as we saw last time, and then lastly, you get Malachi. And uh, with Malachi, uh, we have a date of around 425 BC. So with Malachi, Old Testament history comes to an end in 425 BC. Now, so what that means that we need to do now is to just carry on the history we can't do it from the Old Testament because the Old Testament closes at Malachi, but we can fill in the history of Israel from the time of Malachi up till the time of Jesus. So what is called the intertestamental period, so there's a nice phrase to remember to impress your friends with, all right. So, so a quick look, what, what happened in the 400 years uh, between the Old and New Testaments, okay? Right, so let's dive into that. At the end of Malachi, Israel, or it, it, it then became known as Judea. So, so, so the phrase Judea tended to replace Israel, all right, because it was sort of like the southern kingdom. Okay, Judah, Judea, it's the same. So at the end of the Old Testament, Judea was a province of Persia, all right, the Persian kingdom, the Persian Empire having taken over from the Babylonian. And uh, Persia, by then, had been a world power for a hundred years or so. And um, after the time of Malachi, Persia continued uh, to rule the then-known world for another 90-odd years. Um, it's a period of history when very little is known, um, you know, from secular history, um, except that, by and large, the rule of Persia was, was mostly mild and tolerant. 
you know, so I mean, they weren't times of upheaval. They, they were fairly okay times. Israel certainly did okay. Now, um, after that, uh, in, in 336, all right, as the Persian Empire is starting to decline, so this is 336 years before, you know, the birth of Jesus, Alexander the Great, at the tender age of 20, uh, took control of the Greek army. Now, much of what we're going to see now, we actually covered in Daniel, because Daniel prophesied it all, but nevertheless, we'll go through it again. And um, so Alexander the Great took control of the Greek army. In five years, he had swept eastwards and, and conquered the then known world within five years. All the nations that up to that time had either been under Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or Persia, they all fell to Alexander the Great to the Greek Empire in five years. And by 331 BC, the then known world lay at his feet and the Greek Empire ruled okay. Um, in 332, he marched into Judea, but it was a friendly invasion. He spared Jerusalem and he was pro-Jewish, he was pro-Israel and he was very considerate to them. We actually saw that in Zechariah 9. And um, he, he gave them carte blanche you know, permission to spread out from Judea and to settle any who wanted to in Alexandria. Now, Ale Alexandria is in Egypt, all right, you know, down to the southwest of Israel. And Alexander, what he did is he established a Greek capital in Egypt, all right? It's just like northwest of Cairo. On, on the coast and it was like you know he had his capital in Greece the other side of the Med but he established one in Egypt as well in that part of the world and uh, you know sort of like a a Alexandria Julie became a, a, a great centre of Jewish culture. Um, after a pretty brief reign um, he, he died Alexander the Great that is aged 33 uh, drink uh, playing a certain part in that um, not drink driving either um, and, and the Greek Empire was, was divided between four of his generals. Um, Greece itself was taken over by Cassander, and uh, that, that was the northern empire of the en empire, the northern part of the empire known from them on as Macedonia. Um, Asia Minor, which was Turkey, fell to Lysimachus. That was the other general. But the two eastern regions are the ones that we're interested in. Syria, which is just to the north of Israel, went to the general called Seleucus. So that became the Seleucid Empire. And Egypt, which was to the southwest of Israel, went to Ptolemy, which became known as the Ptolemaic Empire. And um, now, obviously, Judea is now sandwiched between the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire. And um, first of all, it came under jurisdiction of the Syrian Empire, right, the Seleucid one. Um, but um, eventually, and very soon afterwards, it passed to Ptolemy. So it came under the rule of the Ptolemaic Empire. And, uh, and the Ptolemies, that was obviously the name of the ongoing kings, you know, like the first one was Ptolemy, and so they were all called Ptolemy. The Ptolemies continued Alexander's pro-Jewish stance, and uh, they, were, they were happy and peaceful years for Israel. I mean, they, they prospered, um, they built many synagogues all over the place, and made Alexandria a major empire of Judaism. And uh, one of the phrases you'll meet in the New Testament is Hellenist. And the Hellenist was the name given to Jews 
who had left Israel and they'd been brought up in the Greek culture. So they were still Jews, but their language and their thinking and their culture was Greek, and that was called the process of Hellenization. All right. Um, then in 198, Judea was retaken by the Seleucid Empire. There was a skirmish, there was a power play, and uh, Judea passed from the Ptolemaic Empire into the Seleucid Empire, and it was under the rule of Antiochus the Great. Now, he was succeeded not by his son, as he should have been, but he was actually, um, you know, sort of like he was ousted, I mean, great political skullduggery by his younger brother who usurped the throne, and uh, he wasn't the, you know, the rightful heir at all. And his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. We're now in 198 BC, so we're 200 years before the coming of Jesus. And uh, he, he reigned for 11 years. Now, he was the one who hated the Jews with a vengeance. He did everything he could to destroy them. And indeed, he is Daniel's type or forerunner of the Antichrist. You know, the, the, you know, the, the one who, who foreshadowed the coming of the eventual Antichrist himself. It was Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, in 168, so, um, you know, sort of like uh, seven years or so after he took power, uh, in 168 BC, he devastated Jerusalem. He marched in with his army and uh, sort of like seeking to absolutely annihilate it. Um, he defiled the temple by sacrificing a pig in the temple. Remember, you know, pork was unclean, pigs were unclean. He sacrificed a pig in the temple and um, he erected an altar to his own god Jupiter, or Zeus, as the Romans would have called the same god. Now, you couldn't have done anything more awful to the Jews. Um, he then closed the temple. He prohibited temple worship except for pagan worship in there to Zeus. Um, he forbade circumcision. Um, he, he sold most of the Jewish families in Israel into slavery. And uh, he destroyed any copies of the Old Testament scriptures that he could get his hands on. And anyone who was found with Old Testament scriptures were executed um, you know, sort of like summarily executed, and he tortured Jews until they either died or renounced their faith. I mean, he, he was the most dreadful man. Now, after a year of this occupation of Jerusalem, um, a priest called Matanias um, of the family of the Maccabees, so a priest called Matanias Maccabee, Maccabee was, was, was the family name, uh, led a rebellion against this occupation by Antiochus. Um, and he had five sons. And uh, all of his sons were, you know, sort of like real, real soldier types, you know, very able as soldiers. And his sons were called Judas, Jonathan, Simon, John and Eleazar. And, and of course, this period of Israel's history is what is called the Maccabean Revolt. Um, or the revolt of the Maccabees, Maccabees, Maccabean, that was the name of the family. And um, a, a year after this campaign started, Matanias, the father, died, and his mantle of leadership fell, as it would in a Jewish culture, to um, Judas, who was his, his eldest son. And, um, and this Judas proved to be an absolute military genius. And, he, um, and obviously, uh, the, the Lord was with him as well. 
and uh, he won battle after battle until in 165, just a year later, he retook you know, Jerusalem, kicked Antiochus out, um, and purified the temple and rededicated it. And uh, in, in John chapter 12, you'll come across mention of a feast called the Feast of Dedication. And that was a feast that the Jews instigated in remembrance of that day when the temple was rededicated after the Maccabees delivered you know, Israel from um, Antiochus. And, um, and from that time on, Judas, you know, it's like the number one son, he created a political uh, system in Israel whereby he united both the priestly and civil authority in himself and his family. So that what you had is, is what was known as the Maccabean dynasty of priest rulers. So what he did, he combined the king and the priest, making them the same person. All right. and, uh, and, and they governed the free and independent Judea for the next hundred years. Um, and, and that period of, of Israel's history is referred to as the Maccabean era, or for reasons of linguistics, the Hasmonean or Asmonean. It simply depends which language you're transliterating the word from. So for the next hundred years, Israel, peace, no problem, everything going okay. We are now a hundred years before the coming of Jesus. So we are now in the last century before Jesus appears. Now, by 63, BC, so we've now shot forward 40 years. By 63 BC, Rome was fast expanding everywhere, um, becoming the next world power. By then, the Maccabean dynasty had become completely corrupt. So whereas it began in, in an honourable way, by now it degenerated and it was completely corrupt. It was just one family of the Maccabees plotting against another for power and, 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 and I mean it was absolutely awful and um, and eventually there was a clash between two of the leaders of the families um, of the Maccabees one was a guy called Aristobulus II and the other one was called Hyrcanus II um, and what happened was that, 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 that they were busy having a power play for who's going to be the next king. And this is what happened all the time. I mean, it just completely degenerated into just power play, you know, like banana republics, you know, it's just like that. Only this particular uh, power play threatened to lead to an outbreak of civil war in Judea. Now, for, for various reasons, economic and political, a civil war in Judea would not have suited the surrounding Roman Empire, who up till then had been quite happy to leave them alone, leave them to a little independent state, no problem. But this, this threat of civil war in Judea made Rome decide that it would be in its own best interests to march into Jerusalem and intervene and put an end to it. Because it would have destabilised the area in a way that Rome didn't want. So Rome thought, right, okay, we'll invade it and put a stop to it like that, we'll intervene. So what happened was that General Pompey, that, that particular general of the Roman arm, uh, uh, Empire, he invaded, he marched in with his army to Israel, 
and to Jerusalem, and he, he laid siege to the temple for three months. At the end of three months, he massacred every priest in the place and then walked into the most holy place. Just to make the point, I'm in charge, Lance. Not your God, I'm in charge. He walked into the holy place, which was second only to um, Antiochus with his pig. And it was that reason, it was the manner in which General Pompey caused Jerusalem to fall to him. It was because of the way he did it that, that the Jews subsequently, throughout the ministry of Jesus, so hated the Romans. It wasn't just so much that they were, you know, I mean, they, they could have tolerated a bit of Roman control, but it was the way he did it. Pompey desecrated them as God's people, and that's why they hated, the Jews hated the Romans so much. So now we have Israel back under, you know, back in captivity, only rather than being taken from the land, they're in the land, but they, they're occupied now by the Roman Empire. And uh, from that time onwards, Palestine, like the whole the whole area of you know Israel, and you know was 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 ruled by governors appointed by Rome, one of whom was Pilate. Pilate was one of the governors, so the governor had control over the whole area of what you would call today Israel or or the land. But the the, the smaller southern area of Judea, where the Jews mainly lived, um, they 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 had a king. So you had a governor over the whole lot that Judea got a king. Um, now, the first governor of Palestine appointed by Rome after Pompey subjugated it, you know, subjugated Jerusalem, was um, a guy called Antipater. Now, he, he was an Edomite, an Idumean, as it says in the New Testament, because that's, that's all, all to do with, with the language. So he was an Edomite, so we got Jacob's brother Esau turning up again here, as it were. And, uh, and Judea's first king was one of his sons called Herod. Now, this was the Herod um, who the wise men went to when they were searching for Jesus, you know, following the star, where's, where's the baby born? So he's the King Herod that the Magi went to, and he's the King Herod who slaughtered all the baby boys, also known as Herod the Great. Because remember that, 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 that kings afterwards were still called Herod, because they're, they're one family, you see, so you know, just, just so you don't get confused. And, um, and what he did is he married into the Maccabean dynasty. He found one of the, you know, the women of the Maccabees and he married into them, you know, which suited him politically, and it shows how degenerate and corrupt the Maccabean families have become. Um, he killed most of the remaining Maccabean princes, so he married into the family and then killed all the blokes. Um, he murdered his first wife and most of his children. Um, and obviously in doing this, he was wiping out competition. So the Maccabees couldn't, you know, hit back and re-establish themselves. Um, he was a, a great builder and he was the one who rebuilt the temple. He took the temple that had been rebuilt by Zerubbabel, you know, with Haggai and Zechariah helping, which, as we saw at the time, was, was a little affair, not, not as grand as Solomon's one. And what Herod did is he rebuilt it. He started work on it and he got it back to how it was under the time of Solomon. And that, that actually took 46 years. He died years before it was finished. 
but he was a great builder. He was the one who decided to build another Jericho. Oh, let's move Jericho. I mean, it was his hobby. He loved building. I mean, all to his honour and glory, but, you know, that's what he did. I mean, he really did set about a rebuilding programme. And, uh, you know, but in doing the temple also, he gained a bit of favour with the Jews. And um, anyway, he, he actually died shortly after the slaughter of the innocents, you know, when he killed all, all the children, all right? He, he died shortly after that. And, and he was succeeded uh, by his son, who was called Archelaus. Now, his dynasty continued throughout the New Testament, all right? And uh, I mean, like, it was his son, his other son, Herod Antipas, who killed John the Baptist and, 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 and who Jesus was sent to by, by Pilate. But we'll, we'll see that. You know, as as we actually move into the New Testament, so that 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 kind of gives you, um, you know, sort of like the history. That that's what happened in Israel between the ending of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, which leaves us now just with 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 a few crumbs to pick up some miscellaneous items. But nevertheless, it, you know, th these are things that happened again during this um this this period between the you know sort of Malachi dying and uh, you know and the New Testament starting and uh, so so just various things that are helpful to know in understanding the New Testament by getting a bit of background to it. Um, the first and the most important thing you know all about because we've done a series on it and it's the tradition of the elders. I mean that that's there in the tradition series, but just very briefly we'll go over it. Um, that um, back in the time of Ezra, um, again, who was in the, you know, sort of like right towards the end of Old Testament history, Ezra started the school of the Sufrim, which is the Hebrew word for teachers. Bible teachers, fundamentally, he set off. That's what the scribes were. He, he started that off. Now, what happened was, as they looked back, because Ezra, remember, had come back from the Babylonian captivity, and you'll remember that what the tradition of the elders was all about was that, that these scribes eventually developed the idea, look, by breaking the law, by going against the commandments, we ended up in captivity. So in order to make sure we don't do it again, they thought if we hedge God's laws around with other laws, you know, act as a kind of a break, they're called hedge laws, that build hedges around. The idea being that you might break the hedge laws, but they'll pull you up to a stop before you break the actual law that counts. It was a half good idea, no problem with it. But as it developed, what happened was that they built every law from Moses' law, every commandment got dozens and dozens eventually of other commandments built around it. And what happened was that rather than just acting as a kind of a, you know, sort of like a hedge that would stop you getting through to the actual commandment and breaking that one, what happened was that slowly these, these secondary laws became more important than the laws that they were designed to protect. And the idea arose of, of it being called the oral law, that Moses, the scriptures were the written law, but, but the, 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 the picture, you know, the idea emerged, and it was completely false, that there was another law called the oral law, which Moses had passed on to Joshua secretly. Joshua then passed it on to the judges secretly. The judges then passed it on to the kings secretly. The kings then passed it on, blah, blah, and Ezra got hold of it, and then blah, blah, blah. See. I mean, complete fiction, all right. But that's how they rationalised it. Until, at the time of Jesus, um, you know, kind of, it was, it was this, this old law, or the tradition of the elders, 
as it was known, that was more sacred to the Pharisees and to the scribes than the actual Old Testament law was. And the actual fact is that in, in the entire four Gospels in the New Testament, we only have one instance of Jesus ever being challenged on the basis of the Old Testament Mosaic law. And that was the woman who was caught in adultery. Do you remember when Jesus wrote on the ground with his finger? Every other instance he was challenged wasn't because he'd broken the Ten Commandments or the Mosaic Law. He didn't. He never broke the Mosaic Law. It was when he broke the tradition of the elders. And Israel was obsessed with all these traditions. You know, I mean, it wasn't that, you know, you, you, you know, sort of like that the Sabbath was a day of rest. They came up with, with hundreds of things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And those things were more important to them than the actual teaching of the Old Testament itself. And so, therefore, this oral law, this tradition of the elders, developed during this time. And by the time Jesus came onto the scene, it was absolutely in, in, in full swing. And, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, the Pharisees, they, they were very much in, into this. And, um, you know, and, and, and these kind of like, you know, the, the teachers of the law, you know, the rabbis, the lawyers, it's all basically the same, you know, sort of different names for the same people. You know, someone who was like the equivalent of a, a Bible teacher. This, this tended to be their obsession. And, uh, you know, so therefore the tradition of the elders developed. And, and, and you hit up against that in every page of the four Gospels. Right, so there's the tradition of the elders. Pharisees. Let's have a quick look at the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? You can't read the Gospels uh, for long without coming across them. The Pharisees actually originated um, at the time of the Maccabean result. Result. Revolt. Uh, that's when they came on the scene, you know, when, when Antiochus had marched in and the Maccabean dynasty got, you know, family fought and got rid of them, all right? That was when the sect of the Pharisees came into being. And they came into being as a reaction against the influence of the Greek culture. Do you remember I was saying about the Hellenization? the Jews who were living outside of Israel and they were mixing in the Greek culture, and they kept bringing it back? The Pharisees... They would, um, you know, I suppose they'd be sort of like your National Front or something like that. You know, they were, let, let's get rid of all outward in influences. And they were the real, the strict, religiously and politically, they were the ultra-right, right-wing, okay. And uh, they were strict adherents of the Mosaic Law and the tradition of the elders. In fact, they were more strict on the tradition of the elders than they were the Mosaic Law. And, uh, but nevertheless, they acknowledged and honoured the whole of the Old Testament as being the word of God. And uh, by the time Jesus came onto the scene, it was the Pharisees who were the main defenders of and exponents of this tradition of the elders. So that was really their bag. You know, what they, all the time, they were wanting Israel to, uh, you know, to, to, to kind of be living under this tradition of the elders, Pharisaical Judaism, to give it its technical religious name. That, that, that was what the Pharisees were after. And uh, they, 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 I mean, their beginnings were actually noble and heroic. I mean, there was nothing wrong with their beginnings, but it degenerated and they'd become, by the time of Jesus, hypocritical, self-righteous religious formalists. Okay, that's the Pharisees. Sadducees. Um, most, most of the priestly families, most of the priests were Sadducees, and they were pro-Hellenisation, they were pro-Greek. They were all, oh no, let's have the outside influences, no problem. 
they arose at the same time as the Pharisees, uh, you know, about the same time, only they were, you know, were all for Greek culture. They only believed in the Mosaic Law, they only believed in the first five books of the, you know, of the Bible, and they, 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 they didn't, they weren't supernaturalists, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in resurrection or the afterlife. We'll, we'll see um, how both Jesus and Paul had a bit of fun at their expense with them when we come on to the New Testament. Um, and uh, so, so, so they were like the bishops of Durham, all right, the liberals. Um, to separate them, all right, I think I've told you this before, but the Pharisees believed in heaven, and that's how far I see. The Sadducees didn't, so they were Sadducee, and, and, and that, that, that's the way to remember them. Right, synagogues. Where do synagogues come from? Because you won't find synagogues in the Old Testament. The synagogues actually arose during the Babylonian captivity because there was no temple. Here you have most of the Jews living in foreign lands with no temples. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't get to Jerusalem very often. Well, I mean, half the time Jerusalem wasn't there to get to, was it? And uh, so, so they had to come up with something. And so what they did is they came up with synagogues. Uh, synagogue simply being the Greek word synagogue, <laughs> which means gathering. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that's what happened. And it took 12 people, 12 men, to convene a synagogue which is why Jesus chose 12 disciples, or one of the reasons he chose 12 disciples. It was convening a synagogue, a congregation, our equivalent of a church light. And so synagogues sprang up everywhere. You didn't have to have a special building, you just had to have the people. Eventually it got a bit building-oriented, but blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, but that's, that's the way it was. And, and, and they were presided over by elders. You had synagogue rulers, like little house churches, really. And they were there defending the faith in the dispersion, the dispersion being the name given to Jews living across the, the world, you know, in dispersion, dispersed from Israel. And, uh, you know, so they were there to defend the faith throughout the then known world. So at synagogues, and then eventually they sprung up all over Israel as well. So wherever you find Jews, you find synagogues. Right, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the recognised body of leadership over the Jews, all right? Uh, it was inaugurated in 250 BC uh, during the, the friendly reign of the Ptolemies. And so it was like an acknowledged religious and civil head of the nation. It had 70 members, mostly from priestly and Sadducean nobles. All right? uh, some Pharisees and scribes were also tended to be on it, and the Sanhedrin was headed up by the high priest. So, you know, a, a kind of a ruling body of 70 men over Israel. And, of course, Jesus ended up being taken to the Sanhedrin. We'll see more of all this in the New Testament. Um, the language. When, when, when Israel returned from captivity, most of the Jews in Judea spoke Aramaic, which was the language of Syria. Syria was also called Aram. And it was very similar to Hebrew, hardly any, you know, a bit like, you know, as Scottish is to English, Aramaic is to Hebrew, right? It's, they're very, very similar. Um, and, but as a result of the Greek Empire, um, a, a common Greek language called Koine Greek, common Greek, was spoken absolutely everywhere. So the whole world had one language that nearly everyone spoke. And of course it was just tailor-made for the spread of the Gospel and the writing of the Gospels because the New Testament was written in Greek. So, you know, whereas in, in Judea they spoke Aramaic as the common language, probably spoke Hebrew and Greek as well, but they spoke Aramaic, but nevertheless they'd have all spoken Greek, and Greek was spoke, spoken by the whole world, 
So it was absolutely perfect to that extent for the spread of the gospel, um, you know, over uh, the whole world. And uh, just very quickly, have we got time to do this?